historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. My name is Itai Tenenbaum. Uh, I feel a need every time I start an episode to actually introduce myself. Very shortly, um, I'm an Israeli. I was born in Israel in Tel Aviv, lived here till the age of about 11, moved to the United States, was in the United States at the age of 18, came back at 18, joined the army. I was in the first Lebanon war. Later on, I studied university, mainly history, started a tour company, started this podcast. I also served uh, many years as a reservist, mostly in the Gaza Strip, but nothing like it is today. And that is me in short. Now, today, episode number five on the war with Hamas, um, I want to actually discuss three major things with you. Um, I want to discuss with you, first of all, the newest front that Israel faces, which are the Houthis in Yemen. If you don't know who the Houthis are, I will explain who they are. Just so that you know, they're over a thousand miles away and they have declared war in Israel. The second issue I want to talk to you about today are the hostages. Um, and really the extremely difficult dilemma of how to free the hostages. And the third is going to be about a top secret report, 11 pages long, issued almost eight years ago, actually about seven years ago, written by the then Israeli Minister of Defense, which was almost prophetic. It was, it was almost a prophecy. The report was handed out to the political and military leadership. This top secret report, now revealed to the public, spelled out one by one, the strategy, intentions, and implementation of the Hamas attacks on Israel, which even though this report was written seven years ago, took place on that dark Saturday, October 7th. Okay, now before I start, I just want to give you a quick update. In the battles that Israeli troops are fighting in the Gaza Strip, there are incidents which are, again, mind-boggling. So one of them is a report given by the Givati Brigade, that same brigade that lost uh, many soldiers, unfortunately. They say that at one point, as they're about to take over a Hamas stronghold, 100 women and children sent by Hamas started to run towards them. Now, Hamas literally tried to use them as human shields. The women and the children know that the IDF is not going to shoot at them, but Hamas hopes that maybe some will be shot and then they can present the world with the inhumanity, the cruelty of the Israeli Defense Forces. Now, this was handled by the troops on the ground without casualties to the women and children. Having been in the Gaza Strip before, I will tell you that what you do is very simple. You shoot over their head, way over their head. They get scared and they run away. But needless to say, the Hamas is trying to use them as human shields. So this reminds me uh, when I served in the Gaza as a reserve soldier during the time of what we call the First Intifada, the Palestinian uprising against Israel, the First Intifada, started in 87, 88 actually, and went through the early 90s. So in the very late 80s, early 90s, I don't remember exactly when it was, I served in the Gaza and I was on an army base. Um, I remember being in a big tent with my friends, my colleagues, my, my army mates basically, and we heard a siren. The siren that we heard meant, that was an internal siren on the base, it meant that someone was trying to attack the um, the uh, the front gate of the base. So we rush towards the front gate with our weapons, of course, to make sure we secure the area. And when we get there, we see almost a surrealistic uh, scene. Um, there's a Palestinian man holding a knife, actually a young man holding a knife. He's about 30 feet from the front, from the gate. 
And he's holding a knife, yelling out that he's going to kill the guard at the front. The guard is pointing the gun at him and says, if you get any closer, I'm going to kill you. Really surrealistic. We didn't really understand what's happening. We were not going to shoot at this man because he wasn't attacking. He was still standing 30 feet away. One of the commanders, a captain, uh, showed up. He was a very large man, large man physically, tall, very tall, very wide, like a frontline football player, basically. And he just goes over to the Palestinian. This is, again, a captain goes over to the Palestinian and smacks him on the side of his head. The guy goes flying. The knife goes flying. Long story short, the guy was arrested. When he was arrested, we found out that what happened was this man had an affair with a woman. Uh, He wasn't married, by the way, and she wasn't married, but, you know, this is Hamas. He had an affair. They had a sexual relationship. And what happened was that when the Hamas caught him, they said, you know, the only way you can make, make up for doing this horrible sin is by killing Jews. Now, this guy did not want to die, nor did he want to kill any Jews. So he made it seem as if he was going to kill Jews. He got arrested. The Hamas thought that he actually tried and failed. And that was the end of that. Just to understand how things sometimes run in the Gaza by Hamas. When I think about the women and the children being sent towards the Givati infantry um, to try to stop them from uh, taking over the Hamas stronghold, I think about our late female prime minister named Golda Meir, who said, We will only have peace with them when they love their children more than they hate us. That's very adequate for this time. So that was the quick update. Now, let's talk about the three subjects I wanted to talk about. And again, we'll start with the Houthis in Yemen that have declared war on Israel. Now, who are they and what do they want? So the Houthis are a Shiite Muslim fundamentalist group that is a proxy, literally an arm of Iran. They make up about a third of Yemen's population. The original name of them was Ansar Allah, which means supporters of Allah. But it is known as the Houthis after the name of their first commander, whose name was Hussan Badr el-Din al-Hut, who was killed in 2014 by the Yemeni army as he led rebel forces against the Yemen government. So, the Houthis first started their violent rebellion against the Yemen, against their government of Yemen, killing some of the leaders. Then, from 2015, they engaged in an eight-year war against the Saudis, which also included firing missiles at American forces, conducting military activities against the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain. All this due to their alliance with the Saudis, of course. Now, all of this was also orchestrated, not also, it was mainly orchestrated by Iran. Remember that Iran is a majority Shia. The Ayatollahs are devout Shiite Muslims. Saudi Arabia, the UAE, United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain are all Sunnis. The Shiites and the Sunnis have been fighting each other for over 1,300 years. Again, Iran is the boss. It built up the Houthis in Yemen, but they also built up the Hezbollah in Lebanon and pro-Iranian Shia groups in Syria and in Iraq. This is all a strategy, Iran, a plan to take over the Middle East. Now, so back to the Houthis, the Houthis in Yemen. The Houthis have no issue to state out loud their goals. And they chant on a constant basis. One, death to America. Two, death to Israel. Three, curse all the Jews. And four, victory to Islam. The Houthis acted upon the declaration of war. They launched drones towards Israel. All of the drones were shot down. They launched two cruise missiles that were intercepted and shot down by Israeli jet fighters. They launched surface-to-surface ballistic missiles from the Red Sea. 
that were intercepted by the Chetz anti-ballistic defense system. This is a defense system that was invented in Israel together with American aid and was recently bought by Germany so that they can ward off a potential missile attack from Russia. Israel's now in a mode of defense vis-a-vis these Houthis, but you can be sure of one thing. Israel never forgets, and they, the Houthis that is, will face the consequences. The second subject I want to talk to you about today um, is a very painful one. That is the one of the hostages. Now, there's a consensus, a total consensus in Israel, that everything must be done to return them to their homes safely. According to Israel, as of now, there are 242 hostages. But understand, 138 of them, 138 of the hostages, have foreign passports. Most of them are Israelis with dual citizenship. However, there are 15 Argentinians, 12 are German, 12 are American, 6 are French, 6 are Russian. By the way, the Russians. I am willing to predict they will be freed first and maybe even soon. More than that, there are 54 Thai hostages from Thailand, which are agricultural workers that were working in Israel. There's one from China, one from Sri Lanka, two from Tanzania, and two from the Philippines. Of the hostages, 32 are kids, including three-year-olds, a two-year-old, and a nine-month-old. About 20 of the hostages are over the age of 60. Several of them are in their 80s. The director of the Israeli Mossad, that's like this American CIA, his name is David Barnea, visited Qatar and met with senior officials to discuss their efforts to secure the release of these hostages. The Biden administration has also been in close contact with the Qatari government to secure the release of the American hostages and others. The Iranians are also in Doha, which again is in Qatar, hosted by the main sponsor of Hamas, which is supposedly working out a deal in which foreign passport holders will be released in the next few days. The main sponsor of Hamas is Qatar. Don't get it wrong, it is Qatar. And Qatar is playing a dirty, dirty game. On the one hand, an ally of America, they have Americans have the biggest base in the Middle East in Qatar. On the other hand, the Qataris believe in the Muslim Brotherhood, which is Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Hamas, and so on. Now, we're about the Russians. Putin, the president of Russia, has very close ties to the Hamas. As a matter of fact, there was a delegation of Hamas that visited Putin in the Kremlin or in uh, this, uh, Moscow uh, a few days ago. And you can be sure that if the Hamas will let out prisoners, the first ones that will be let out will be the ones with the Russian passports. On that note, you have probably already know that one hostage was freed by Israel. Her name is Ori Megiddish. She's a female soldier who served on the Gaza border in the area called Nachal Oz and was kidnapped to Gaza. She was rescued in a complicated, daring military operation from the heart of the Gaza Strip. And of course, the details are not allowed to be shared. Ori returned to her family. It is evident that the operation was planned a few days in advance. Ori was held alone on her own by Hamas and was rescued under fire. Our forces did not incur any casualties in this mission. Hamas, of course, claimed that she was never held by them. Now, outside of Ori's house in Kiryat Gat, which is also in southern Israel, Dozens of residents came to celebrate her release from captivity. They sang and they danced. 
This was a boost to the morale of Israelis. Realize that we Israelis felt that Ori was our own daughter rescued from hell. But many more are still prisoners held by these monsters. And the question is, how do we free the rest of the hostages? So now we have to kind of ask ourselves, what does Hamas want? Vis-a-vis the hostages, of course. So first of all, they want to ensure their survival. Hamas wants to ensure its own survival. The survival of their leadership. The survival of their organization. This unfortunately means that they will try to hold on to the hostages for as long as they can, once again, to ensure their own survival. This means that what is most important to them is to secure some kind of ceasefire that they hope would become permanent. Of course, permanent to Hamas means until they get strong enough to strike at Israel again. The second thing the Hamas will demand is gasoline. Because gasoline also helps to ensure their survival. Gasoline is used by Hamas to ventilate their tunnels and used for the rockets and their missiles. You will be hearing, and you already are hearing, that their hospitals are going to malfunction and stop working because they have no gasoline. The truth of the matter is they have plenty of gasoline, but they're yelling and screaming out for this because they want to make sure to survive as long as possible. The Hamas, that is. And another demand will be to release the terrorists who are held in Israeli prisons, that is, 6,000 of them. Many of these prisoners have committed crimes not only against Israel, but crimes against humanity. Notice that none of these demands actually have to do with the civilian population in Gaza. So what about the population in Gaza? A man named Musa Abu Marzouk, who is a member of the political bureau of Hamas, was interviewed on the RT network in Arabic. What's RT? RT means Russia Today. It is a Russian state-controlled international news television network that is totally funded by the Russian government. The interviewer was at one point being a little naive and asked a question. And the question was, why do you not allow the Gazan civilians to hide out in the tunnels from the war? Abu Marzouk, again, a member of the political bureau of Hamas, said, and I quote, Many people ask why we built the 500 kilometers, that's about 315 miles, of tunnels, and we don't build shelters where civilians could hide during the bombings. We built the tunnels because there's no other way to protect ourselves from being targeted and being killed. These tunnels are meant to protect us, Hamas that is, from the planes, from the jet fighters. He continues, everyone knows that 75% of the residents of Gaza Strip are refugees, and that is the responsibility of the United Nations to protect them. The responsibility of the occupation, Israel that is, to provide them with all the services as long as they are under occupation in accordance with the Geneva Conventions. That's what he said. So let me, Itai, remind you of a few things. One, Israel left Gaza in 2005. That's 18 years ago. We're not conquering Gaza. We didn't conquer Gaza. We're out of there since 2005. Two, Gaza has a border with Egypt. If you want to go anywhere, you can go towards Egypt. Three, billions of dollars were used for weapons and tunnels instead of taking care of their own people. Geneva Conventions? UMF. You are holding our babies, our women, our elderly as hostages. A word of warning. Don't hang out close to this monster so that you don't become collateral damage. 
Hamas is an expert at using psychological warfare. They know us. They know our society. Or rather yet, they know our biggest and deepest weakness. What is it? Well, it's the love of our kids. It's the love for our mothers and fathers. It's the love for our elderly. It's the love for our people. They even know the Talmudic phrase that says in Hebrew, Kol Israel Arevim Zebaze, which means all of Israel are responsible for each other. Hamas is an expert at exploiting this. Multiple media reports that a deal for the release of most of the hostages is in the pipeline and could take place quickly. These reports are generated both from regular media sources that are popular as well as media sources that are subordinate or proxies of either Iran or Qatar. For instance, Al Jazeera. Folks, they are playing with us. They are psychologically playing with us. In addition, Hamas publishes propaganda directed at the families of the hostages and even towards the U.S. administration, of course, hoping that the U.S. halts Israel. The consensus in Israel is that these reports of a deal are mainly propaganda and are aimed at dividing the Israeli public. These Hamas butchers say that there's a possibility of releasing all civilian hostages, not soldiers, I remind you. They're going to hold on to them in exchange for the supply of fuel, which they need again for their tunnels and rockets and missiles, plus a significant reduction in military activity for some time. That's what they say, which means a ceasefire that they're desiring. Again, this is the game they play on the backs of helpless children. They need to hold on to them to ensure their survival. They may give up two at a time like they did before every couple weeks, maybe even more at some point. They will continue to play this game with the feelings of the families, with the hope that these families and Israeli society at large will pressure the Israeli government to halt from eradicating them. Unfortunately, we Israel have experience with the Hamas psychological warfare. And I will share with you a couple of examples. Hamas holds two bodies of slain Israeli soldiers since 2014. The bodies of Hadar Goldin and Oron Shaul. Again, from 2014 during an operation called Protective Edge. They also hold on to two Israeli citizens, one named Avira Mengesto, who crossed over to Gaza on September 7, 2014, and another one, an Arab named Hisham Asaid, who crossed into Gaza in 2015. Both are believed to be alive. Both of them crossed into Gaza for different reasons. They were not necessarily mentally stable. Also, Gilad Shalit, a well-known name among many in the world. Gilad Shalit was a soldier that was kidnapped and held hostage by the Hamas. He was held by the Hamas for five years. And at the end of the five years, a deal was brokered in which Israel allowed over a thousand terrorists outside of Israel's prison for the one soldier, Gilad Shalit, who returned safely home. One of the prisoners that was let go for the soldier, Gilad Shalit, was a man named Ikhya Sinbar, which was the main architect or one of the main architects of the brutal attack of Saturday, October 7th. Now look, we Israel have never been in a situation like this. We now have, like I said before, 242 hostages. It's the largest we've ever had helped in captivity. If you remember back to 1976, where Palestinian terrorists hijacked the Air France airplane with also 240 passengers, but only 100 of them, that's not only, 100 of them is a lot, 
were Israelis or Jews that they held on to. They let go 140 that were not Israelis or Jews. Those 100 hostages were saved in a daring rescue operation, a commando operation by the Israeli Defense Forces Special Units. This rescue was coined as the most successful rescue operation of hostages ever to have taken place. But this is, of course, different. The prisoners we have now, not prisoners, but rather hostages, the 242 of them are spread out in the tunnels, very difficult to rescue them in a military operation. As I mentioned before, there is a complete consensus that everything that can be done must be done in order to rescue them. This is not only an Israeli consensus, it is something that we, the Jews, have always spoken about. As a matter of fact, in the Talmud, it's called Pidyon Shfuim. What does that mean? It means the redemption of the captives. It is a mitzvah rabah, which means a great mitzvah, a great deed to release anyone that's in captivity. But we also know that the Hamas is not really willing to release them unless they ensure their own survival. And so we have a tactic which we think may help to work. The Minister of Defense, Yoav Gallant, had said that military action on the ground creates political pressure, first and foremost, on the Hamas. Israel claims that reports about a deal mainly coming from the Hamas are, once again, just propaganda aimed at dividing the Israeli public. The Israeli Minister of Defense, again, Yoav Gallant, claims that the combined land, air, and sea ground operation creates more options. Each push forward creates targets and operational intelligence and expands the ability to deepen the military operation and hence put pressure on the Hamas to cut a deal and release the prisoners. In any case, the military activity inside the Gaza Strip can lead to more acceptable solutions regarding these hostages. Don't be surprised when they float many more options of a deal as the Israeli sword gets closer to their necks. And so now I've reached the third subject I wanted to tell you about, which is the great colossal Israeli failure. Many Israelis are disturbed with this, and this will be investigated thoroughly once this war is over. On December 21st, 2016, the then Israeli Minister of Defense named Avigdor Lieberman submitted a top-secret report to the Israeli cabinet. The report was read by the top military and political leadership, including the IDF chief of staff at the time named Gadi Eisenkot and the then Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The report was extremely alarming. It stated, and I quote, Hamas intends to carry out the next conflict into Israel's territory while invading with significant and well-trained forces. Hamas intends to occupy an Israeli community and perhaps even several communities. To remind you, there were 22 communities on the Gaza border that were attacked. Hamas also intends on taking hostages. If this happens, it will lead to the physical harm of the hostages and to the severe demoralization of Israeli society. The top secret document continued to describe the strategic and tactical objectives of the Hamas. The document stated that Hamas sets as its goal the destruction of the state of Israel by the year 2022. In September 2016, in Qatar, the Hamas Executive Committee, their leadership that is, held a series of secret meetings. They met for three consecutive days between September 25th to the 27th, again of 2016. In the meetings, Hamas emphasized that they needed a calm period with Israel in order to complete their military readiness 
for war. The document, the top secret document, presented by the then Minister of Defense, also stated the following. Hamas wants the next military campaign against Israel to be on multiple fronts. That is to say, the Gaza Strip, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and the Sinai Desert. Hamas also plans on targeting Jewish institutions around the world. The report continued and said, As part of the multi-front conflict, Hamas plans include that their operatives outside of Gaza, that are all over the world, will be an active and significant partner. Folks, the demonstrations you're seeing all around the world are not spontaneous. They are organized. The document detailed the growing power of Hamas military capabilities. Their goals are detailed that 40,000 armed men should be active by 2020. There's also reference to the increase in the number of rockets and attempts to develop advanced capabilities on land and in the sea. Also in the air, drones with intelligence capabilities, such as jamming of GPS communications and UAV frequencies, as well as attack capabilities, which we saw their implementation on October 7th. This document also details the Hamas request for economic aid from Iran. The quote is, Due to its growing economic distress, the organization is asking Iran for an aid of 50 to 60 million dollars. This is, of course, on top of the many, many millions, billions, that the Hamas was given by Qatar. The report continued, as for the border fence with Gaza, the assessment of the situation states that the defensive barrier being built on the Gaza border, based on its variety of means and capabilities, is indeed an important component of the current security strategy. But it cannot constitute a strategy by itself. Modern history and past precedents, such as the Magino Line, the Mannheim Line, and, ba- and the Barlev Line, prove that fences and fortifications do not prevent war and are not a guarantee of peace and security. Lieberman, the then Minister of Defense, emphasizes the report, if Israel waits until intelligence access is achieved, then the Hamas will strengthen immensely. In the summary of the document, a warning was given that now, three weeks into the war, is taken on a horrific reality. It states, not taking initiative would be a grave error that could lead to a difficult strategic situation for Israel. This could lead to an unplanned deterioration, which in such a scenario, Israel will no longer be able to eliminate the leadership of the military wing of the Hamas. Or worse, Hamas will start a conflict at a convenient time for them. I believe, said Lieberman, that the consequences of such a move on the part of Hamas could be far-reaching, in some ways even more devastating than the results of the Yom Kippur War. Folks, that was prophecy. Rather yet, an important, realistic view of the situation. And like I said, once this war is over, a lot of Israelis in the political leadership and in the military leadership will have to give answers. I would like to end this episode by telling you a story of a hero, a policeman, a police officer, named First Sergeant Igor Pevenev. First Sergeant Pevenev told us his story, and I quote him. When I arrived at the police station for my shift, I received a message from my wife that there was a lot of sirens and that this was not normal. I told her to go to the safe room, to be calm, and that everything will be fine. After 10 minutes, I saw that some of the communities in the south were alerting their emergency security squads. In the news flash, they said that terrorists 
had entered the city of Shderot. I understood that if they reached Shderot, this is trouble. I called my commanding officer and told him I was going home to be with my family. Officer Pevenev was 50 miles from his home. He says this, I got into my car and started driving towards my house. At the Ofakim intersection, the road was already blocked in the direction of Shderot and Ofakim by the police force. They stopped me, asked where I was going. I explained to them that I wanted to reach my family. They opened the road for me and I continued to drive towards my house. The radio in the car was on and I heard on the news that in some communities there were battles. I became more alert and paid attention to everything that was happening around me. As I passed the Urim Junction, I spotted a white car 100 meters away from me, stashed on the side of the road. This made me suspicious. I stopped close to a bus stop, left my car, and walked through the fields towards that vehicle. In the distance, I heard gunshots. When I approached the white vehicle, I saw a dead soldier on the road. I looked inside the car, which was riddled with bullets, and in the driver's seat, I saw another soldier who was also dead. I started walking towards the noise of the gunshots. I didn't know if they were terrorists or maybe our military. When I got really close, I spotted two terrorists shooting an Israeli vehicle. I went into a kneeling position and opened fire on the terrorists. After they fell, my gut feeling said not to go there and wait a few minutes. My gut feeling helped me because after two or three minutes, two more terrorists showed up with weapons onto the scene. When they got closer, I opened fire on them as well. I saw that they fell from my shots. I waited a short minute making sure they were dead. They were. As I walked towards them, I spotted a gray car. When I looked inside, I saw two Israeli women who were inside the car that were dead. So I got back into my car and drove. When I arrived at Enapsol Park, I spotted a motorcycle parked on the small ramp above. I immediately realized that these were terrorists because the locals who ride there on motorcycles never leave them on that ramp. I walked towards the motorcycle, crouched down. And then I spotted more terrorists. I opened fire on them. I saw that their weapons fell to the ground. I waited two minutes, and when I saw that no one was moving, and that they were not showing signs of life, I got back in my car and reached them. They were dead. I continued driving home. At this point, I started to feel fear, dreading what I would find at my home. I was scared. Every time before I did something, I thought twice because the first thing that went through my mind was that I had to get home. I was scared, but survival instincts kicked in. On the way home, I noticed more and more terrorists. I wanted to get home, but also wanted to make sure these terrorists aren't able to take more lives. So I used the same tactics to take them out. Altogether, I killed 13 of the Hamas butchers. I finally got home to find my family was alive and well. Police officer, First Sergeant Igor Pemvedev, is a hero of Israel and shall be awarded as such. I want to end this episode with a personal note. We've all seen the horrific Nazi-style anti-Semitic demonstrations, especially in London and in other places around the world. Yet, polls in England show that about 65% support of Israel in this war. And so I wanted to conclude with a positive message. The British newspaper, The Sun, dedicated its front page to the 32 children who were kidnapped and are still held hostage. 
photos of the kids are plastered on the front page. And the headline reads, This is why Israel must fight the evil Hamas. Bring them, the hostages, home. Leading newspapers in Germany, disgusted with the anti-Semitism and the threats against Jews, pro-Jewish sentiments. On the cover of the weekly newspaper, The Stern, are pictures of several German Jews with the following wording, Never again is now. The weekly's editor-in-chief, Peter Schmitz, also wrote, If Jews in Germany are afraid, then you can't print this often enough. Now look, this is just a drop in the bucket. But we, Jews and non-Jews, must act to educate the masses. I have dedicated my life to telling the story of the Jewish people in Israel because I believe that educating Jews and non-Jews alike is essential for combating anti-Semitism. And with this knowledge, we will become empowered and resilient. There are plenty of people in our world that are still on the fence of where they stand. Let's educate these people. That is my mission in life. The Inside Israel podcast needs your support. Please consider supporting us by logging into the website insideisrael.fm. Again, insideisrael.fm, not .com. And click on the support us link. This episode, with all the other episodes, can be listened to on many media outlets, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, to name a few. It could also be listened to on the InsideIsrael.fm website.